0: Welcome to Animals Today, your home for a serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Dog breed stereotypes. We know they're out there. We hear them all the time. Chihuahuas are yappy dogs and they nip at your ankles. Dobermans and Rottweilers are scary looking dogs and therefore they're mean dogs. Pitbulls are vicious and aggressive dogs. Well, listen to this. A new study demonstrates that contrary to popular belief, a dog's breed won't predict a dog's behavior. More than 18,000 dog owners were surveyed and the DNA analyzed to see if the physical traits and behavior can be correlated with the dog breeds. The researchers concluded that the behavior of dogs and personality of dogs is pretty much determined by individual experiences, training, and other environmental factors, and not so much by the breed of the dog. So a dog's breed won't predict a dog's behavior. And that might not be a big surprise to some of you and me because you and I know that every dog is an individual and has its own personality regardless of what kind of dog it is. In this study, they scored dogs on what they call dog human sociability. That's like how comfortable dogs are with people, including strangers. And guess who scored high on this measure of how receptive a dog is to unfamiliar people? The pit right up there along with the Labrador and Golden Retriever. But the Pitbull? A friendly and sociable and loving dog? No, can't be. These are the dogs we ban from our cities and ban from living in certain apartment complexes because they're mean and they're vicious and will attack you and bite you without provocation with their locking jaws. Marjorie Alonzo, a co-author of the study, said, what the dog looks like is not really going to tell you what the dog acts like. Most of us know that, but we also know that many people have these preconceived notions of how a dog is going to act or behave and what his personality is going to be based on what kind of dog it is. The study also showed that the size of the dog had almost no effect on differences in behavior. Eleanor Carlson, one of the co-authors of the study, said, you will never have a Great Dane-sized Chihuahua, and you'll never have a Chihuahua-sized Great Dane. But you can definitely have a Chihuahua that acts like a Great Dane, and you can have a Great Dane with the same personality as a Chihuahua. So the dog's breed is not a good predictor of dog's behavior. And stereotyping a dog based on a breed can be damaging and harmful to the dog because it often leads to things like excessive killing of certain kinds of dogs in our shelters and can lead to breed-specific legislation, which are laws that regulate or ban certain dog breeds, those breeds who are believed to be dangerous or vicious, ostensibly to increase public safety. Breed-specific legislation typically targets pit bull-type dogs. And there are hundreds of major cities and counties in our country with bans and restrictions on pit bulls. In some areas, there's a complete ban on pit bulls. So you can't own or have a pit bull or something that even looks like a pit bull. It might not even be a pit bull. But if he has certain characteristics of a pit bull, well, he's banned. Some states or cities charge higher registration fees to own a pit bull type dog. Certain landlords and homeowners associations blatantly state that they will not allow Pitbull-type dogs. And some insurance companies use dog breed as a criteria to reject or deny homeowners coverage. There are some cities that require pit bull type dogs to be muzzled when out in public, regardless of whether or not the dog has ever shown any signs of aggression. That doesn't seem fair, does it? Those in favor of breed-specific legislation say it's necessary to ensure the public safety and argue that such legislation protects citizens from vicious and dangerous dogs. Well, if you talk to people who actually know what they're talking about and have done research in this area, they would argue that breed-specific legislation is ineffective and a means of spreading stereotypes and stigmatizing certain kinds of dogs. And I've said this before many times. If the goal is to reduce dog bites and dog attacks, perhaps funds and resources would be best used on education and regulation that targets irresponsible dog owners and dog breeders and animal abusers, not responsible guardians. Breed-specific legislation uses appearance as the primary factor for regulation regardless of a dog's behavior and regardless of responsible ownership. You might have the most well-behaved dog, and you might be the most responsible dog guardian. But if your dog looks a certain way, there might be restrictions imposed upon him or you, or he might be banned, depending on what geographic area or city we're talking about. And this is another big problem with breed-specific legislation, is that it's not even targeting a breed of dog. It's targeting or it's based on the physical characteristics of a dog. Because one doesn't even know for sure what breed or mix of breeds your dog is unless DNA testing is done. Studies have shown that even those who are most familiar with dogs, like veterinarians and dog trainers and you and me, are not reliably able to determine a dog's makeup or dog's breed just by looking at the physical traits of a dog. We currently have two dogs in our family. Both are around 60 65 pounds. The older one, Cosmo, he's all black except for his feet, which are white, and a little patch on his chest, which is white. He has many physical traits which one might associate with those of a pit bull-type dog, except for his black color. And when we adopted Cosmo, our veterinarian guessed that he had some American pit bull terrier in him and maybe some black lab as well. And the shelter staff at the shelter where we adopted Cosmo from labeled him as a black lab mix. Cosmo's DNA test indicated he was about 50% pit bull breed type. The other 50% was a mix of a bunch of other breeds. How much Black Lab in Cosmo? None. Zero. Sky, our other dog, has a blocky head and a big beautiful smile like you might associate with a pit bull, but Sky has a skinny body, long slender legs, and the color and texture of her coat and the color of her eyes are such that when we first rescued Sky many people would identify her as a Weimariner. At the time, I wasn't really sure what a Weimaraner looked like, so I had to look it up once I figured out how to spell it. Anyway, how much Weimariner is in Skye's DNA? None. Zero. In fact, she ends up being 99%. Guess what? Pitbull. So if you think about it for two seconds, using appearance as a primary factor for regulation or creating laws makes no sense whatsoever. Years ago, a woman named Victoria Voith appeared on the show. Her primary area of research was in visual breed identification of dogs. And Victoria got interested in this topic when she was working at various animal shelters, and she noticed that there was a diversity of opinions of shelter workers when trying to identify the makeup or breed of dogs. So she studied the relationship between the visual identification of the dogs, right, what breed a dog or mixed breed a dog is, determined by someone's perception, and the identification of the dogs determined by DNA. And her studies showed that most of the time, in fact, 75% of the time, there was misidentification of the dog. So what a person thinks a dog is by their looks, by their physical characteristics, did not match the DNA of the dog 75% of the time. That's pretty significant. She explained that people working at shelters or rescue groups are often required by management to label or identify the dogs that enter the shelter. So they are instructed to pretty much guess what they think the breed of dog is or at least guess what they think its predominant breed is and then call it a mix of that breed. And she said what people do is they look at a certain feature of a dog that they perceive to be a feature of a specific breed and they identify it with that purebred dog. So let's see. This dog is black, medium-sized, average-looking, so I guess I'll label him a black lab mix. Or this dog is small, Big ears, big eyes, so I'm going to label him as a chihuahua mix. Victoria was explaining that there are harmful consequences of mislabeling or misidentifying dogs. It might affect the success of the adoption of the dog from the shelter. A dog labeled as, let's say, a pit bull mix might not even be considered by some adopters. We know that's true. It happens all the time. Misidentification of dogs can affect how dogs are treated by the shelter workers. Maybe the shelter has a policy that certain breeds of dogs are considered less adoptable and therefore euthanized earlier than others would be. And misidentifying dogs might affect how the adopter treats that particular dog. And then, of course, she explains another harmful consequence to mislabeling dogs is certain dogs might then be subjected to discrimination, like breed-specific legislation. Victoria explained, the problem is the data that we use to make these laws or regulations are based on people's perception of what the dog breeds are, which could have been tabulated from shelters or vet office records or emergency rooms. So we have absolutely no idea how accurate or valid this information is when they were entered in the databases or written in the research papers. And emergency room records is a good example approximately a thousand emergency room visits per day in the US are due to dog bites. Emergency rooms record the number of dog bites that they treat. They will ask you what kind of dog bit you. Well, I don't know. It was a large dog, sort of had some features like a pit bull. Okay, let's just record it in our ER records that a pit bull dog bit you. And this data then is used to create dog bite statistics. And it's used in research papers talking about which dog breeds are most likely to bite you and the most vicious dogs. Or this data is used to create these laws that ban or restrict certain types of dogs. So can one accurately conclude that pit bulls or Rottweilers or German shepherds cause more dog bites or attacks than other breeds of dogs? I don't think so not based on records of people guessing at or assuming the breeds of dogs involved in human dog bite-related incidences. And one more thing, and then we're gonna have to take a break. It's been said that little dogs bite more than big dogs. But little dog bites are underreported because the big dogs have a stronger bite and they do more damage if they bite. And you're likely to seek out treatment for a bite from a big dog. Okay, after the break, I want to share with you some more interesting research related to this topic. Don't go away. You're listening to Animals Today. For the past three decades, International Society for Animal Rights has fought the battle against dog and cat overpopulation. ISAR is committed to informing the public about the overpopulation program and the spay-neuter solution through outdoor advertising. For a list of all ISAR overpopulation programs, please see their website at www.isaronline.com. Welcome back. A new study finds a dog's breed won't predict a dog's behavior. Senior author Eleanor Carlson says while genetics play a role in the personality of any individual dog specific dog breed is not a good predictor of those traits. What we found is that the defining criteria of a golden retriever are its physical characteristics, the shape of its ears, the quality and color of its fur, its size, not whether it is friendly. You and I know this But many people have these preconceived notions that certain breeds are more dangerous than others and how a dog is going to act or behave is based on what kind of dog it is. And in fact, there are hundreds of laws and policies out there that discriminate against certain breeds based on the assumptions that they are inherently dangerous. These laws are called breed specific legislation and they primarily target pit bull type dogs. Those in favor of breed specific legislation say it's necessary to reduce dog bites and dog attacks and to ensure the public safety and such legislation protects citizens from vicious and dangerous dogs. But wait a minute, wait a minute. If we now know, and most of us have known this for a while, that the behavior of dogs and personality of dogs is pretty much determined by individual experiences training and other environmental factors, and not so much by the breed of the dog, is it really fair we have these laws that discriminate against certain breeds? Of course not. But that's why these laws are also called breed discriminatory legislation. And that's why for many years, animal advocates and researchers have been saying these laws are not effective. In addition, breed-specific legislation restricts dogs based on a certain Appearance, So this is just another problem with breed-specific legislation. It's really not even targeting a breed of dog. It's targeting or it's based on the physical characteristics of a dog because one doesn't even know for sure what breed or mix of breeds your dog is unless DNA testing is done. And numerous studies have shown that one can't reliably determine the breed or mix of breeds in a dog simply by the dog's physical traits or characteristics. And this is a huge problem with this legislation. It doesn't take into account the dog's actual behavior, and it doesn't take into account how responsible or irresponsible the dog owner is. So it uses appearance only as a means for discriminating. Experts agree that this type of legislation that restrict dogs based on appearance do not reduce dog bites or dog attacks in communities, and thus breed specific legislation is ineffective. And of course, it's a means of spreading stereotypes and stigmatizing certain kinds of dogs, namely the pit bull. So perhaps it's time to focus our efforts on irresponsible or reckless dog owners and dog breeders and animal abusers, instead of banning certain dogs based on their appearance I mean, that's a big thing here, which I want to emphasize. Breed-specific legislation fails to address the irresponsible dog owners, and it fails to address the actual behavior of the dog we're punishing. And another big thing, breed-specific legislation not only discriminates against dogs, but it punishes people as well. Why should responsible dog owners suffer? If you own a dog and that dog falls under the regulated breeds, Is it really fair for you to be forced to pay fines or move or have difficulty finding housing or having to muzzle your dog in certain areas or, in the worst cases, be forced to relinquish your dog? Did you know that animal shelters are forced to kill larger numbers of healthy, adoptable dogs in cities and states where breed-specific laws make adopting and owning certain dogs virtually impossible? According to pitbullinfo.org, Peer-reviewed studies have concluded that preventable factors related to irresponsible ownership are the primary cause for the majority of dog bite-related fatalities, and that breed is not a factor. BSL does nothing to address the relevant and most significant factors that are scientifically linked to serious dog bite-related incidences, such as a dog's history of negative behavior, previous bite-related incidents, and factors related to irresponsible ownership. According to the Humane Society of the United States, experts agree that breed-specific legislation and similar policies that restrict dogs based on appearance do not reduce dog bites in communities or enhance public safety. The American Bar Association states, in part, The American Bar Association urges all state, territorial, and local legislative bodies and governmental agencies to adopt comprehensive breed-neutral dangerous dog and reckless owner laws that ensure due process protections for owners, encourage responsible pet ownership, and focus on the behavior of both dog owners and dogs, and to repeal any breed discriminatory or breed-specific provisions. The American Veterinary Society of Animal Behavior states, any dog may bite, regardless of the dog's size or sex or reported breed or mix of breeds. The AVSAB's position is that such legislation is ineffective and can lead to a false sense of community safety as well as welfare concerns for dogs identified often incorrectly as belonging to specific breeds. And this is from the National Canine Research Council. The trend in prevention of dog bites continues to shift in favor of multifactorial approaches focusing on improved ownership practices, better understanding of dog behavior, education of parents and children regarding safety around dogs, and consistent enforcement of dangerous dog and reckless owner ordinances in communities. Effective laws hold all dog owners responsible for the humane care, custody, and control of all dogs, regardless of breed or type. So there is universal rejection of breed-specific legislation and a growing awareness that this type of legislation not only does not improve community safety, but it penalizes responsible dog owners and harms their dogs. And of course, it stigmatizes the breed of dog. So the good news is breed-specific legislation is on the decline. And according to the main side of the United States, many municipalities have replaced breed specific legislation with breed neutral policies. You know, through our history of pit bulls and gang culture getting intertwined and the purposeful breeding and training and abusing these dogs to fight and become vicious and aggressive, you can see why these dogs are stigmatized. And this Breed-specific legislation debate is far from over, and the pit bull is, in fact, the most controversial dog alive today. But just know that there's no convincing data to show that breed-specific legislation has been successful or effective. So it's really time that more lawmakers and policymakers and public officials come to grips with the reality that the dog or breed of dog is not the problem. And regulation that is going to have any true effect on public safety is going to have to focus on dog owners and dog breeders. And really, rather than legislate what breed or breeds of dogs people can have, perhaps we should legislate who can and cannot have dogs. I mean, we don't want sex offenders to be around kids. We also don't want animal abusers and the Michael Vicks of the world to have dogs. And just as each human person is an individual, each dog is an individual and shouldn't be judged because someone guessed at their breed and shouldn't be judged based on a physical trait or physical appearance. We should be evaluating and treating each dog, no matter its breed, as an individual. We'll be right back. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner, and your Animals Today Minute for today is about hummingbirds. These delightful, diminutive flyers comprise more than 300 species, with a range from southern Alaska to southern Chile. Thanks to their unique figure-of-eight pattern of wing flapping, hummingbirds can move in precise, quick movements, including backwards and upside-down flight. Hovering by a flower permits their long, specialized tongues to reach the flower nectar before darting off to the next meal. And depending on the sugar content of the nectar, hummingbirds may consume up to their own weight of it each day. Less preferred foods include tree sap, pollen, and insects. But a lot of energy is required to sustain their metabolic rate, which is the highest of any warm-blooded animal. Their name, of course, comes from their characteristic sound produced by the rapidly flapping wings, measured at up to 80 beats per second. The smallest hummingbird, the bee hummingbird, can weigh less than 2 grams, that's less than a penny, and most weigh less than 5 grams. It's easy and fun to attract hummingbirds to your garden with easily available feeders and sugar solution. But here's a tip, they often get stuck in open garages after being attracted to the red color of the door's emergency release cords handle. Their natural instinct to fly upwards to safety rather than horizontally out the opening can tire these little guys out. But by painting the handle a different color than red or wrapping it with black electrical tape, the birds won't wander into the garage. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today.
1: Welcome back. A lot of big animal news this week, Laura. You ready? Yes. Okay. U.S. House passes legislation to end FDA animal testing mandate. This is really big. That's the FDA Modernization Act that was part of a larger package of FDA related reforms, has passed the House. Our friend Wayne Pacelli, who is president of Animal Wellness Action, he said leaders of the House and lawmakers from both parties recognize that the United States must lift an archaic animal testing mandate for drug development and replace that with a 21st century method grounded in human biology. Right. This is the biggest policy development in congressional history on the fight to replace animal testing with morally and scientifically superior methods. And lots of people were involved in this. It passed overwhelmingly bipartisan fashion. Our drug development paradigm, which was framed by the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetics Act, that's also called the FFDCA, that was from 1938, that relied on animal tests for safety and efficacy, according to Vern Buchanan, who's a Republican from Florida. Our drug development paradigm needs a reboot, and this bill moves us in that direction in one simple but meaningful way. Animal tests, in large part, are not predictive of the human response to drugs with very high failure rates when the drugs go into clinical trials. So this is going to remove that requirement for animal testing and just allow a whole new wave of innovation to To proceed, In fact, uh, one of the heavy hitters in funding this kind of thing, Gary K. Michelson, who's the founder and co-chair of the Michelson Center for Public Policy, he stated that the most predictive technologies in existence should be available to drug sponsors to provide the safest and most effective medicines for patients. We are already on the verge of the next phase of modern drug development, and FDA modernization will be the catalyst for this transition to modern science. And we agree. So hopefully this will pass the Senate soon
0: and then become law. Yeah, that's really big news, Peter. And if anyone wants to learn more about the FDA Modernization Act, they could check out your interview with Wayne Pacelli, which was perhaps a month or so ago, right? That's right. And you just go to Animalstodayradio.com.
1: In Detroit, a discovery was made on a uh, passenger's luggage coming in from Philippines And they opened up the personal bag and found some seed pods. The agricultural specialists found some seed pods in the bag. And as you look at these, there are little, what they call, exit holes. And that's where insects were. And then they burrow out. And that means that these uh, pods were possibly a home for some kind of insect. So what they did was they quarantined the pods and they just see what happens and they Ultimately, they hatched these moths. Yes. Oh my and God. And these moths—not um, only you—you don't, you don't want foreign moths coming into your country as an invasive, you know, pest, but these moths turned out to be very old, and they have not been seen for at least 110 years anywhere in the world.
0: Wow. So you've
1: got the moths, but they're in Detroit, of all places. Here's a picture. They're quite flashy looking. And uh, they are very distinctive, but they were, I thought to be extinct or no one was thinking about them recently, but there they sh- showed up. So so what was the guy doing with the... Yeah, th- that's a real good question. Why does this uh, person think these pods are valuable or... And where was be- he
0: bringing them? Where was he taking them? What was he going to do with them? So
1: much to, to learn about this. Maybe Netflix will do a movie about this one <laughs> because they, they're running out of stuff, they're running out of viewers. <laughs> the mo- they get the moth crew. <laughs> get them off! <laughs> yeah, please come back. Just oh get, okay. my God! Anyway, this story is getting a lot of coverage, and that has to do with a scientific study examining pharmaceuticals, human medications that were discovered in the bodies of this fish called the Florida bonefish. A study was done in South Florida, and uh, scientists from Florida International University and the, there's a thing, the Bonefish and Tarpon Trust, they uh, found that these fish contain an average of seven drugs, seven pharmaceutical contaminants per fish, including things like blood pressure medications, antidepressants, prostate treatment medications, antibiotic pain relievers, and others. And uh, these findings, according to the scientists, are truly alarming, and they indicate that the use of these pharmaceuticals by humans The systems that are designed to remove these contaminants from water that ultimately ends up in the seas, these are incomplete and not working properly. So wastewater treatment facilities are not capable of removing these contaminants before they release uh, their product, which is really amazing. So what happens to these fish and to the other fish that eat these fish and to humans that uh, consume uh, ultimately these fish as well? The FIU and Bonefish Tarpon Trust, their researchers say that the drugs remain active even at low doses and can affect fish feeding, activity, sociability, and migratory behavior. Hmm. Also in Florida, a legal agreement was struck between Defenders of Wildlife, Center for Biological Diversity, and Save the Manatee Club with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. And they've been working on this for quite a while. And what they are going to do is agree to study and designate what is the manatees' critical habitat. Right now, that's ill-defined. And manatees are dying in horrible, horrible amounts. In 2021, 1,100 Florida manatees died, mostly from starvation. And that was caused by water pollution in the Indian River Lagoon, what happens is that the harmful algae blooms and the loss of seagrass have shrunken the habitat and there's just not enough food. So areas designated where the manatees can uh, be protected need to be uh, confirmed. And once those are designated, that leads to requirements, uh, then regulatory uh, restrictions can be put on activities and that would thereby expand their uh, ability to live. So. That's progress. So sad. They're starving to death. Yeah. In Wisconsin, oh, Laura, you're going to like this one, there is a zoo called the Oxner Park Zoo, and uh, someone has set free some of the animals. The uh, Milwaukee Journal Sentinel uh, reported that the police think a person or group of people actually set some of the animals free, including a couple of great horned owls and a couple of otters. And the otters were uh, recovered and one of the owls evidently flew away and came back and one is still missing. No dangerous animals were set free. And according to the report, exterior gate padlocks were opened along with the habitat locks. So so someone either with a key or some lock picking skills mm. decided that we were going to uh, set some of these animals free. So there you go. If you are a uh, young and energetic attorney looking to get into animal welfare and animal legal work look at the group called Legal Impact for Chickens just posting this cross posting this they're looking for a litigator to help grow their nonprofit and fight for animals and this is a definitely a ground floor position they are a 501c3 litigation nonprofit and they work to make factory farm cruelty a liability. Prospective applicants are zealous, creative, and enthusiastic, and they're litigators. They're entrepreneurial. They want to help farmed animals, and they are willing to roll up their sleeves to do all sorts of nonprofit startup work in addition to uh, litigation, and uh, they are licensed to practice law. So, Check out Legal Impact for Chickens. It looks to be a pretty
0: fun adventure if you're up for it. Their mission is to find factory farms that are, are not following guidelines and regulations? That would be my guess. That would be one of
1: their activities. It's not really stated here, but yeah, they want to uh, make life difficult for uh, factory farm chicken operations. Yeah, I like it. Yeah. I like Maybe it. Yeah. Oh, by the way, a starting salary, seventy to to $100,000 a year, depending on experience. Not chicken feed. (laughs) Our friends over at Giraffe Conservation Foundation, we've spoken to them a number of times, they uh, just put out a description of a training that they funded. And it was really interesting. There's great photos if you want to go to giraffeconservation.org. They organized and and paid for a 10-day training for veterinarians on the ground in Africa, teaching them how to sedate and uh, transport wild animals to fit them for GPS and to do veterinary examinations to help the plight of giraffes and other animals that they need to care for. And uh, there's a lot of enthusiasm of veterinarians, but they don't get this hands-on training of really A to Z, how how to do it safely. And so other entities involved were the University of Namibia, the Namibia University of Science and Technology, the African Wildlife Conservation Trust, and others. And uh, it looks really fascinating and a great opportunity for adventuresome veterinarians who want to get involved in this. And the company Chewy. Chewy! Chewy, the uh, company that we all came to know and love during the lockdowns related to the pandemic. Yep. Well, now in the post-pandemic lockdown world, they are uh, continue to grow. And uh, recent uh, financial reports show notable sales growth, slightly decreased margins, but sales growth. So that is viewed by the analyst as a positive thing. And so their stock price is uh, increasing. <laughs> But there's competition, and what are now that people are out and going back to uh, brick and mortar stores? Are they going to be able to continue the growth? They are counting on increased spending per customer to keep the revenue moving in the right direction, and we'll see what happens to them. We appreciate them; they're interesting company. And okay, more with animals today after this break.
0: Back to animals today. Peter. Lori. How many rabbits do you know? Rabbits. How many rabbits? I don't know any rabbits. Most famous rabbits quiz. Okay. (laughs) Ready? Ready. Ready. Let's start out with someone everyone ought to know. Yeah. This bunny is probably one of the most famous rabbits of all time. Yep. Who's that? Bugs. Yes. Bugs bunny. And the most well-known catchphrase associated with bugs. What's up, dog? That's right. Okay. Bugs Bunny is an American icon. Bugs was created in the late 1930s by Leon Schlesinger's Productions. Of course, Bugs is best known for starring roles in the Looney Tunes produced by Warner Brothers. Peter, who voiced Bugs Bunny? Mel Blanc. That's right. Hey. Mel Blanc is known as the uh,
1: man of a million voices,
0: something like that. Right? <laughs> the man of a thousand voices. Okay. <laughs> he developed and performed nearly four hundred distinct character voices, including creating voices for an estimated ninety percent of Warner characters, including Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Tweety Pie, Sylvester, and the Road Runner. Yeah, amazing. Okay. Next bunny. Who is the pink rabbit powered by batteries? Oh, that's the uh, Energizer bunny. Would you believe it <laughs> if I told you? Would you believe if I told you that there are two answers here, okay. the Energizer bunny and the Duracell bunny? Oh. And depending on where you live, you might give one answer oh, over that's the other. Oh, yeah. yeah. If you live in the United States or Canada, then you probably know that pink bunny as the Energizer Bunny. If you live in any other part of the world, then you might know that pink bunny as the Duracell Bunny. That's so good. Okay, but there's a very long story that goes along with this. Oh, really? Yes. So let me give you the abbreviated version of it, okay? okay? Yeah. In 1973, Duracell launches the Duracell Bunny television campaign and in this television ad it shows a bunch of pink bunnies playing drums and bunnies start to drop off one by one until the one bunny that's left beating his drum is the one that's powered by duracell batteries right and this is how the duracell bunny was born but the end of the 1980s duracell failed to renew the protection of the trademark's property rights so in 1988 energizer launched their advertising campaign. Oh. And guess who was the star? Another bunny. The pink bunny. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> but in their ads, yeah. the pink bunny looked a little similar to the pink bunny in the Duracell commercial. So consumers were confusing the bunny with the original one. So ironically, Duracell sales continued to grow, and Energizer sales start started to drop. Oh, wow. So interesting. So Energizer decided to add sunglasses and flip-flops to their pink bunny to distinguish it from the original bunny. And they also started to mock Duracell in their ads as well. Then finally, Energizer sales started to increase. Okay, so Energizer registered their pink bunny in the United States and then Duracell wanted to regain their campaign ads using their bunny and tried to register its pink bunny in the United States, and there were all sorts of legal disputes until both companies reached an agreement, that was in 1992, whereby Energizer can only use their mascot in the U.S. and in Canada, and Duracell everywhere else. And even then, Peter, the legal battles were not over. There was a lawsuit filed by Energizer for breach of contract and trademark infringement and so on. And anyway, that's as much as I know about the legal aspects surrounding the pink bunny. So bottom line, here in the US, we know about the Energizer bunny, but outside of North America, it's the Duracell pink bunny. But had Duracell not let their trademark lapse in 1988, there might not have ever been an Energizer bunny that goes on and on and on. Well,
1: fascinating story. <laughs> okay. I
0: wonder who lost their job over that one. <laughs> okay. Next famous rabbit. Okay. Who is the fictional rabbit character from Disney's animated films Bambi?
1: Okay. Uh, it was um, something like Hopper,
0: Trigger, um, Oh, close. Um, Thumper. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Why was he called Thumper? Don't know. He had a habit of thumping his left hind foot. Okay. Can you picture him like thump, thump, thump? Okay. Do you remember what Thumper would say to his mother when his mother asked him, what did your father tell you?
1: No, I don't, Lori.
0: His answer would be, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say nothing at all. That's called Thumper's Law. Okay. You need to know that. That's good. And look where we've come. If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all to the internet and social media where you could say any hurtful thing to anyone at any time, right? Okay, this is a good one. Another one the younger generation won't know. What cereal, Peter, did your mother try to poison you with when you were a kid with lots of sugar, all sorts of artificial flavoring, and red, orange, and yellow artificial coloring Yeah. And there was a white rabbit on the box of the cereal, and the cereal was first created by General Mills.
1: That was Tricks. That's right. Tricks with the X. Very good. I, I, my mom poisoned me almost every morning <laughs> yes. of the week. I know. With, it was that or something else.
0: So Trix cereal was first introduced in 1954 wow. and was the first fruit-flavored cereal on the market. The original round corn puffs came in three colors, raspberry red... Orange, orange, and lemony yellow. Do you remember that? Well,
1: it's so funny that you put a certain <laughs> fruit along with those colors. It's like it has nothing to do with it.
0: <laughs> but that's what the I character know. said. I, I know, I know. Raspberry, right, orange. <laughs> okay. And what would the cartoon rabbit who came alive from the cereal box try to do? Oh, tell me. He would try to eat the cereal, take the cereal from the kids and eat the cereal. <laughs> and then what would the kids say to the rabbit? Silly rabbit, tricks are for kids. That's right. Okay. That's right. <laughs> that's terrible, Lori. What bunny clucks like a chicken and returns every Easter to sell Cadbury cream eggs? Oh. The Cadbury bunny. Yeah, okay. Okay, okay one more. Who's the bunny in Alice in Wonderland? Oh, something rabbit. Yep. The, uh, f- um, tell me. White rabbit. The white rabbit. Oh, yeah. Do you rabbit. remember how Alice ends up trapped in Wonderland? Through the looking glass? Well she follows the (laughs) rabbit. (laughs) She follows the rabbit down the rabbit hole. Okay. Okay. Other famous rabbits, Peter Rabbit and Peter Cottontail, Roger Rabbit, Skippy the Robin Hood Rabbit, Lola Bunny, do you know who that is? You'll like you'll like her, Peter. Look her up, Lola Bunny. Okay. Okay, we have one more minute, so I'll ask you this. How many famous songs can you name with rabbit in the title?
1: Oh my goodness, uh, White Rabbit, that was a hint you gave me, right? Yes. From Jefferson Airplane.
0: Yep. Um, you should know one other. One other. From one of my favorite performers of all time. Jack Rabbit. Yes. Yeah. By Elton John Good. Yeah. You got it. Okay. These others, I, I have no idea. I've never heard of Rabbit Fighter by T-Rex, Pink Rabbit by The National. Mr. Rabbit by Casper Baby Pants. I have no idea who these people are. Are You the Rabbit by Marilyn Manson. Run Little Rabbit by Cab Calloway and his orchestra. Rabbit Will Run by Iron and Wine. And Fat Rabbit by Ludacris.
1: Oh, of course, Ludacris. Okay.
0: <laughs> okay, that was okay, fun. I'm so glad
1: I know all about my rabbit natural history now. Thank you, Lori. <laughs>
0: Thank you for joining us on Animals Today. I'm Dr. Lori Kirschner, encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other being sharing our planet, the animals.